Thank you, praise team. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Weems family. So good to worship together, isn't it? I'm so thankful for it. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And as you're doing so, the children who have been registered for our children's worship can uh, exit and find Miss Brittany over there in the corner, who thankfully reminded me. So children can be dismissed at this time. Luke chapter 1. For most folks in the uh, pre-COVID era, Christmas has been a time for traveling and perhaps visits, uh, visits at home. Maybe you go and visit other folks, whether that's family members or uh, perhaps shut-ins. I know we have a lot of folks at our church who aren't able to, to get out. And um, I remember as a child doing this as a family. Our family used to take part in what we called White Christmas, where we would uh, wrap groceries and uh, different foods and items that folks would need in white tissue paper and then deliver them on Christmas Eve. And I remember, I, I remember this very clearly and had quite a few childish reactions to this. I remember one thing was that I'd feel uncomfortable in, in these homes. Uh, I was uncomfortable with the poverty. I was uncomfortable relationally. I didn't know them and, and wasn't sure if we were welcome guests. But also remember thinking, what a lame gift. Who wants a can of beans for Christmas, right? And I was very concerned to tell my mom and dad, I do not want green beans for Christmas, right? And don't give me socks either. Parents, we're not supposed to, you're not supposed to do socks on Christmas. But as I grew older, I, I realized the significance and the importance of what we were doing and that we must have been a blessing. It must have been a blessed visitation for those that we went to see. But there's also such a thing as uncomfortable or at least awkward visits, right? Unwelcome visits. Maybe some of you have been blessed by God with some relatives that do this sort of thing around Christmas time, right? The bless their hearts kind of relatives where you're not, that your advent calendar doesn't count down the days till Christmas. It counts down the days till bless their heart, relatives leave, right? And you want to get your house back, uh, perhaps visits that are more uncomfortable. And of course, I couldn't help but think of the classic movie that helped us uh, visualize this with so much humor. When one family endures the inconveniences of having an out-of-town family take over their house, and the wife says, I don't know what to say, except it's Christmas and we're all in misery. So visits are welcome and pleasant. Other visits are not. The text that we have today is a text that is celebrating a welcome visitation. It's a song, or as Chris has reminded me, a canticle, whatever that is, about the coming of Jesus and what he has done, what God has accomplished. It's a long-anticipated visitation, one with massive, lasting consequences. We'll read part of uh, Zechariah's prophecy and Mark will cover the rest next week, but look down with me. Luke chapter 1, verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. 
as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Let's pray one more time this morning. Oh God, we are asking that you would visit us again now by your spirit. We stand in great need of your word for every detail and for every life-giving truth that can give us hope in the darkness that we face in our lives. So we pray that once again you would fill us with your spirit and empower us to hear and to receive these words of hope. I pray, Father, that we would be changed and that we would take on the attitude of Zechariah as a sinner who's been redeemed, celebrating all that you've done for us in Jesus. We pray that you would accomplish this by your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Now, of course, in order to understand what's going on in this prophecy, we need to have a little bit more context of what is taking place before and what has been taking place after. Last week, Mark uh, preached from what's often called Mary's, it's the Song of Mary, or Mary's Magnificent, and it's a, uh, a song that is celebrating what God has done for her. Well, this text is similar and is often called the Benedictus or the benediction or the blessing. And it's a song that is celebrating how God has worked in history to bring about the long-awaited Messiah in Jesus. Zechariah's words are an explosion of joy and thanksgiving as he thinks about what God has done. Now, Zechariah, at this point, has found himself as a new father. Against all odds, he is a new father, but that's not what the song is about. And that's not what his joy is coming from. His most, the, most, the bulk of his joy is not about his son, but about the birth of another son. Not John the Baptist, but Jesus the Messiah. And of course, they are connected. You probably remember the events that have taken place before this song. The birth narrative in Luke centers around two barren women, Mary and Elizabeth. And we know Mary's story and her miraculous conception well, but we mustn't overlook Elizabeth, the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Luke chapter 1 and verse 7 tells us that, that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, that even though they were blameless and righteous before God, they had no child. And Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. It's important to remember that who Zechariah is. He's a prominent priest. We know that because he is the one selected by Lot to go into the temple, the, the innermost part of the temple. And that's where he encounters an angel, the angel Gabriel, who told him one day that his wife would conceive and that she would give birth to a son who would be filled with God's Spirit, and because of that, he would be a mighty man before the Lord. And this, understandably, seemed incredible to Zechariah, and so much so that he argued or questioned 
the angel Gabriel. It's a wonderful text to read. He said, how can I know? Don't you know that we're old? And Zechariah's like, or the angel Gabriel's like, um, I'm an angel, right? I come from God. I've, I've, I was just in the presence of God. This is what God says. But Zechariah sinned by failing to believe the word of God. And as a result, as a consequence, God struck him mute. Zechariah literally lost his ability to speak until the birth of his son, John the Baptist. And what I love so much about this text was that the moment that his tongue is loosed, he burst out in praise. This is what he said. These were the first words that came out of his mouth in their words of exaltation and praise. I think that fact is worth some reflection for us. We see Zechariah, who was a sinner, he had been restored. We know he was a sinner because the text shows he sinned in the text, right? And God struck him mute. He failed to believe God, as we often do, and was bearing affliction, the affliction of muteness, because of it. And yet he had been restored. Yet God had blessed him, yet God had restored the damage of sin, and what came out of his mouth were words of praise. Zechariah had been thinking and meditating on the greatness of God. Truths that you probably know, but he had been thinking on them and deeply considering them so that when his mouth was opened, he couldn't help but talk about it. It's what overflowed. He could not help because spiritual realities had deeply moved him. Now, it's interesting to think about because if you think about your own life, especially the times where you're confronted with your own sin, perhaps from reading the scriptures, perhaps convicted by the Spirit in time alone, perhaps in a sermon, or perhaps when a loved one confronts you with your sin, how is it that you respond? What are the first things that come out of your mouth? I know that for me, often, sadly, it's defensive words that come out. But you, didn't, you don't know what he said, right? And you don't know how tired I am. Or words of excuse, words that are blame-shifting or defending myself, maybe even words of pity. What kind of words come out of your mouth when you've been shown to be a sinner? Well, for Zechariah, even after this embarrassing and very public failure, right, everybody knew what had happened, he wasn't giving excuses, he wasn't trying to clean his reputation, he wasn't trying to secure his career, Zechariah the sinner knew it. He had been suffering because of his sin, and now he had been restored. So what does he do? He praises God. Friends, we as restored sinners, if you are here today and you know that you are a sinner and that you have been restored to God by the work of Christ, you, a restored sinner, how do you respond to the good news of the gospel? How do you open your mouths? Well, we as restored sinners should follow this example with our lives. When our sin is pointed out, or when our sin is discovered, as unpleasant as that may be, let's orient ourselves to the Lord and his greatness and the truths of his gospel without fear, just like Zechariah did.
I also can't help but point out what came out of Zechariah's mouth. When it came time for him to praise, he had something to say. When Zechariah opened his mouth, Bible came out. Bible came out. Verses 68 through 79 contain some 33 references to the Old Testament. In just 11 or 12 verses, 33 references or allusions or images that we can trace back to the Old Testament. Each one, and this is a good tip, when you're reading your Bible, especially your New Testament, and you see references to the Old Testament, it's an indication that you need to consider and celebrate what God has done or said or promised in the Old Testament. And it gives you a new reason to praise. And this is full of that sort of Christian devotion. Zechariah was a man who had been so shaped by his Bible that when he opened his mouth, when his tongue was loosened, Bible flowed out. Church, don't you want to be like that? Don't you want to be shaped by the Bible? I love how Charles Spurgeon put it. He was speaking in admiration of the, the great English Puritan John Bunyan. And he said this memorable quote. He said, Why, this man is a living Bible. You prick him anywhere. His blood is Bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot help speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the Word of God. Don't you want to be like that? Don't you want Bible to flow out of you so that when you see what God has done, you can connect it to dozens and dozens of promises and phrases and images that he's uttered in the past? We have this great source of comfort. Let's be shaped by it. But we turn our attention now to the content of the prophecy of, of, this, of this song of praise. And we'll focus on 67 through 75, and Mark will pick up with the rest next week. And there are a great number of glorious themes here. But if I tried to discipline myself to summarize the main idea here, I'd do, I'd do something like this. God has finally visited his people to rescue us from the affliction of our sin so that we can worship him with joy. God has finally visited his people to rescue us from the affliction of our sin so that we may worship him with joy. We can explore this idea through several concepts that are repeated in this prophecy. Look first with me at how Zechariah celebrates this kind and merciful visitation. A kind and merciful visitation. In verse 68, Zechariah uses this language, God has visited. Do you see that there? That word visit? God has visited his people. This is very intentional language. Just a, another pro tip, right? Whenever you're reading the Bible, all the words are intentional. They're all there for a really clear purpose, so you can look carefully. But that phrase, God has visited, has a long biblical history. Sometimes when God comes... And it can be marked by that, that phrase, God has visited. Sometimes it's in judgment. And so it's a terrifying sort of thing. Jeremiah 44 speaks of God coming even to Israel, to Jerusalem. And yet when he came, he came with pestilence and the sword and with famine. That is not a pleasant visitation. 
But most of the time, when that language is used, it's indicating something else. See, this time, the language of God visiting is not of vengeance and of wrath, but it's of compassion. It's of peace. It's mercy. He's coming to help. In fact, that's often how that phrase is used in the Bible. God visiting because somebody needs help. God is coming to his people who are in trouble. Maybe you remember in Genesis, the Bible says God visited Sarah in her affliction because she was barren. Or in Exodus, I think chapter 4, where God visited Israel because of their affliction, even to slavery. God was not coming to judge. God was not coming to punish, though he could. Right? Zechariah's sin reminds us of that. Instead, he comes to bless and he comes to save. What good news. That's why Zechariah says in verse 74 that we can serve the Lord without fear. This is a merciful visit. He's not coming to condemn and to judge. He's coming in tenderness. Because of that, you don't have to be afraid. As parents, we're constantly trying to teach our children, fear God, don't fear God, right? Fear God, don't be afraid of God. And you feel some of that tension here. Because God comes to deal with sin. There is no question about it. Yes, when God comes, he will deal with sin. This is what Jesus does. That's why he came. The glory of the gory cross is a reminder of that. God deals and must deal with our sin. And yet, he's not coming to judge. But he's coming to open up a way for sinners to be with God without fear. As sinners, if we're honest, or if we read, we have plenty of reasons to fear God. I mean, to be afraid. We are sinners, and every time we sin, we position ourselves in the wrath of a holy God. And yet, this God came as a baby. As a baby. No wrathful baby. There's no fear. Who's scared of a baby? God's coming is not a scary thing. It's not to be an awkward or annoying thing. Rather, it is a welcome visitation for sinners. As we lit the Advent candle of peace this morning, we remembered God comes to us, not on a war horse, but he comes in peace. Not with a sword, but meekly on a donkey in a trough. It's a kind and merciful visitation because our God is a God coming in peace. Zechariah also celebrates that he comes not only in mercy, but as a rescuing king. A rescuing king. There's so many things to say here, but look first at verse 68, where you'll see the text says that he has redeemed his people. Now the idea of redemption, that is assuming that there's some sort of captivity, some sort of bondage or enslavement. Otherwise, why would you need to be redeemed if there's nothing to be redeemed from? Does it make sense? Well, so we have to supply the captivity. And of course, we understand from the whole scope of the Bible that as sinners, we are enslaved to sin. 
That's all Paul speaks of it. That's all the Old Testament pictures are that, that we are enslaved to sin and its consequences. I think some of this language can be picked up when we read about this theme of enemies. In verses 71 and 74, King David, this is uh, David's, these are referencing David's life and David's language, this idea of enemies that this, this coming Messiah will deliver us from. And it reminds us that just like David faced many enemies in his life, that we too face forces of evil in so many different ways. Even if they're not people chasing us with a spear, like David, we face evil in all sorts of ways. And we can explore other ways that Jesus comes into a world that is evil as we think about even King Herod, who is the embodiment of evil in the New Testament. This is a man who murdered babies. And Jesus came into that world, much like Moses and Pharaoh, also a man who murdered babies. Right? Our world is full of of darkness and evil, and there are real enemies. And verse 79 puts it plainly, I love this phrase, that Jesus came to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. We are people with an enemy, the enemy of darkness and the shadow of death. You know, no matter how hard we try to make Christmas the most Magical, marvelous, cozy, wonderful time of the year. No matter how much tinsel and tradition and Bing Crosby you have, there is no way to escape the brokenness that's in our world. You feel it in your bodies. You feel it in your hearts. You see it in your home. It's all around us. No matter how great things are here, we can't escape the fact that even as we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate and live as those who are in the shadow of death. Some of you will celebrate Christmas without loved ones this year, maybe for the first time. Some of you will experience Christmas primarily through the lens of loneliness. Some of you are reminded of broken relationships in your home, in your family. Some of you will be facing disappointment as children don't respond to the way, to the gift the way you expected, or when that credit card bill comes January 15th. All sorts of disappointment, even when Christmas ends. All of us, especially those who are aging, all of us, may remember that it's one less Christmas, or how many more. There's all sorts of sad things in this world. Even children grow and leave. Friends, Christmas holly has thorns. And we're reminded that in spite of so many wonderful, genuine, sincere blessings that should be enjoyed and celebrated, sin has taken so much from us. Well, this text presents Jesus as the hero as the rescuing king storming into our darkness to deliver us. The text connects him with David. Did you see that? Multiple times. And David, if you know your Old Testament, is the conquering king. He's the prototypical warrior king of the Old Testament. I mean, even as a boy, this dude had his head or his foot on the head of a giant. And then he cut it off, right? 
Why is that a children's story? We'll talk about it later, right? He, he, this is a man, David had, was so successful in battle that he had so much blood on his hands he couldn't even build the temple. David, the victorious king. Jesus is like that. That's this image that we get here. In verse 69, it says, God raised up a horn of salvation for us. Speaking like does David's language, he's speaking of Christ, of course. Now, this image of a horn being raised up probably doesn't resonate with us 21st century folks quite as well. But in the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, the image of a horn is a symbol of strength, a symbol of power, symbol of ability, right? It's, it, it's, it comes from the image of an animal that has horns that are majestic and large and, and for its defense and for its strength and for its glory. We understand that, right? Or whether it's a ram or we probably think most about deer. Maybe you deer hunters here can, can appreciate this the most, right? Because uh, if you are a seasoned deer hunter, it's most likely that you are one who is, you're not hunting does, right? You're hunting bucks, right? You can tell how, how serious a hunter is based on if they shoot does or if they shoot bucks, right? If, if they're, who, they're, who they're hunting. And, and they don't want just little bucks. They want big bucks with lots of points. And the idea is that there's more majesty with big bucks, there's more majesty. The more points, often the older they are, the more beautiful they look. And the older they are, it means that the longer they have survived hunting season, which means that they are harder to catch and harder to outsmart. And so the most courageous and noble men of Trinity cover themselves in deer urine and dress and camouflage and take their deer cameras and their GPSs and their high-powered scopes and sneak into the woods where we go toe-to-toe with these big bucks, right? And the idea is that there is majesty in these horns. High-point bucks are beautiful and glorious to look at, but their horns are a reminder of their ability, their ability to escape and to be safe. That's more of the biblical image. When Jesus is called the horn of salvation, it means that he is a glorious, mighty warrior with defenses and salvation abilities. He has skills, a particular set of salvation skills. And if you need saving, and if you know that, that's good news. And that's worth singing about. And that takes a blue Christmas and turns it into a bright Christmas. Because he's come. And that's what we're celebrating. Jesus did not come merely to sympathize with us and put his arm around us in our afflictions. He came powerfully able to save. To change it. I shared that truth with a lady on her deathbed this week. Because that's what she needed to hear in her final moments of life. As bitter as death is, that's why Jesus came, to fix that. And that's the promise of Christmas. He came to save, not primarily from our social enemies and our geopolitical enemies. He he didn't even do that. But he came to save us from the ultimate enemies of sin and death and all that they affect in our lives. Jesus saves Zechariah is celebrating that, but he goes on to celebrate even more. Imagine that. 
Because the third thing, the third glory we see in this text is that God keeps his promises. Now, I haven't been given enough time to uh, go through this whole prophecy, but there's so much here on how God has, uh, how this song is in the context of God's covenant with Abraham, which is the second half or the middle portion, and God's covenant with David, which are connected. But Zacharias sees that as significant in verse 70 because he highlights it. He is, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, right? In fact, we can note how this first part of this prophecy is written in the past tense. Use your eyes, look down at the text, and look uh, in verse 68. He, had, he visited, past tense, and redeemed, past tense. Or verse 69, he raised up, past tense, just like Mary did in her song. Speaking in the past tense, but, but Jesus hasn't been born yet. So how can he, past tense, redeemed if Jesus hasn't been born yet? Well, scholars call this kind of language the prophetic past, right? The prophetic past tense. And the idea is that it's a prophecy. And since God keeps his promises and the prophets are sure of that, they're so certain that it's going to happen that they might, they might as well use past tense. It's already happened. It's as good as have happened. Isn't that cool? Which means that even though this hasn't happened yet, God promised it. Therefore, it's happened. It's as good as done. Why? Because we have a God who always keeps his word, even when there are obstacles. There are obstacles, aren't there? Verse 72, Zechariah, the guy who just sinned, uses this phrase, remember his holy covenant. In the Old Testament, the language of remembering a covenant was often used when sin comes into conflict with God's promises, right? When Israel sinned, and so Moses would say, remember your covenant, remember your covenant, don't destroy them, remember what you have said. Friends, our faithlessness, it's a, it's a significant obstacle, isn't it? Even Zechariah, the blameless and righteous one, the priest, refused to believe God when an angel was delivering the message. I can sympathize with that. I struggle to believe God even when I've seen him prove himself thousands of times. We struggle with this. And yet this did not derail God's plan to save, did it? Overcoming our sin is no small thing. Keeping his promise is no small thing. And God is the faithful covenant-keeping God. And so this is a great reason to rejoice and celebrate that God does not abandon us to our sin. Your sin has not ruined your life if you turn to Christ. He has a plan. You see, this should fill us with hope. Because as Ad at Advent, we're not just celebrating the first coming. We're looking ahead, which is hoping in a second coming, the second Advent. Yes, he has come, but he's coming again. Friends, one day soon, he will crack open the sky. And he will crack open the graves. And every eye will see him. And our Lord will throw back his majestic horns of salvation. And he will defeat before our very eyes once for all every hint, every shadow of sin and death and all that it touches. Anything that could ever ruin a Christmas. God said he will do this. And guess what? God keeps his promises. So we have cause for hope. He's coming again because he has plans for us. 
And those plans, this text tells us, are that we would be priests. Priests. Look down at 74. We get a glimpse of what God is saving us for so that we might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him. That's language of with him and in his presence for all of our days. If you are familiar with the Old Testament, you'll hear all sorts of Old Testament ideas. Zechariah is combining ideas from the Exodus. And, and think, for example, you remember the words that God told Moses to say to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Why? So that they may serve me in the wilderness. Or again, in Exodus where he says, you will be a kingdom of priests to me. Right? That's the idea of serving and worshiping before God. That's what a priest does. A priest is someone who not only serves God, but who is near God and with God. Friends, that's our future. That's our destiny. We get to be with God. And the Bible says that in his presence is the fullness of joy. That is the motivation for holiness in our lives, to be with God and the peace that comes from that. But do you see the pattern that's been taking place here? We are a people who are in distress because of sin. It's part one. There's sin in us and there's sin around us that causes all sorts of problems. And yet God has sent a deliverer, a king, a redeemer. Why? So that we can be with God, serving him with joy. That's the pattern. That's the outcome. You see it again in Israel's life. Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And God sent a deliverer and he redeemed them and brought them out of bondage. Why? So that they could serve him with joy. We even see that same pattern in this very text in Zechariah. Zechariah was a sinner. Why? We see that he doubted God. He was struck with affliction because of sin, mutinous. What did God do? He delivered him. So what did Zechariah do? He served him. He sung with joy before the Lord. That is what saved people do. We recognize that we have been delivered from sin and so we turn to the Lord, living in holiness and eager to be with him, exalting him. So friends, this Christmas, even as you may find yourselves living among the shadows between the two advents, look ahead. Look back on, your glory, on the glory of your redemption, but look ahead to the redemption that is coming. Worship the Lord. Walk in holiness and in righteousness. And look ahead. He's coming again. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we respond to this invitation. Oh God, we pray that as we have heard these glorious truths, you would help our timid hearts to believe them. Help us, oh God, to find this lasting hope even in a world that is shifting and changing with each passing day. Lord, give us a hope and a confidence that you are not a God to be feared in Jesus. And so we have been freed. Freed up not to live for ourselves, but to serve. Help us to open our mouths and sing of this truth, we pray. Amen.